Yeah. I'm going to, um, it's 8.30. There's some new faces in the crowd. I see you. Thanks for being there. You're good. You're good folks. Um, and I do want to honor you, especially you who showed up in your jammies that I, uh, you know, we will stop at nine. I've, I've been startled by the number of people who said, who say to me, I'm already in bed at that time, which I may be startled, but I can respect it because sleep is the new status symbol, right? So if you can make it work for you, that's, that's fabulous. All right. Just so this little, per- now I, tonight, um, usually I show you the whole outline and eventually I will do that. But at least for tonight, uh, I'm just going to start with the icon and perhaps instead of, perhaps you can turn the rational side of your brain off just a little bit and just kind of enjoy that, that icon, at least for the first um, 10 minutes or so. And then we'll talk about it a little bit more, but I'm just going to leave that there. Of course, you have a, an outline in your email. If you want to pull that up on a separate, on a phone or on something, that'd be okay too. But at least to start uh, just this little prayer, you may know this. Um, I think it's European in origin. I often bump into it when um, I travel in places where they honor the Sacred Heart of Jesus as a feast. So you've all seen this, your Catholic friends. You know, there's they were completely normal picture of Jesus, and then his heart is um, out and sometimes stabbed or broken. And this prayer often goes along with that. So. As you remember, I've been trying to give you little prayers that you can say in a word or two, Lord, help, Jesus, it's me, right? Um, Little prayers, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. Uh, But then this one too, which is often a child's prayer, but it's it's often, it makes a large request. So, Lord, make my heart like your heart, right? Amen. And then it even seemed a little odd to put the amen on there because so often that prayer is spoken repetitively. And I know there's all sorts of um, different ideas about this, but I've really come to respect disciplined repetitive prayer because what happens is that the, the words themselves explode the more time the more times you say it, even for you. Um, I mean, if you said the Lord's Prayer, if you took if you took 15 or 30 minutes and said the Lord's Prayer 10 times in a row, it would be different for you on the ninth time than it was on the first time. And I, I know that sometimes people are like, ah, this is rote, or people don't pay attention. Yeah, what happens is you actually get transported to a different place. And suddenly you start to wonder about what it actually means to say on earth as it is in heaven so i just you know like so many other things just give it a try and see what would happen to you you know if you said this for a hundred or a thousand times tonight when you're lying awake and staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night um, i promise you it would be good for you okay so i've left the chat open i'll try to pay attention to that i can't see enough of you if you raise your hand or anything so you can always unmute and interrupt me if you want but at least for the beginning, um, just have a look at that icon of the transfiguration. We've looked at this before, and it is one of my favorite icons because of all the things that it says to us, especially in a time when I've posed the question of if it's safe to go outside. It's a very strange world right now. We're so disconnected. I read this week that 
the government of Japan appointed a cabinet level minister called the Minister of Loneliness. I couldn't actually believe it, so I checked a couple of different papers. But um, the isolation has become so severe that they actually think there needs to be a govern government official um, combating loneliness. That tells us a lot about ourselves. So I want to talk tonight a little bit about our present, but also about our future and how you might think about yourself. You know this icon, I think we've done this from time to time at St. John, but as you look at it, remember that icons are thought of as telling a story and are even spoken of as being written. So you can write the Gospel of John or you can write an icon. And usually we'd go back and forth and I'd ask what you see, but that's difficult on Zoom. So just sort of have a look at it. And I just want to note the things that are most common in this icon. First is Jesus who comes and he emerges from this deep blue. And he comes into the world in the holiness of white. Um, Jesus coming in holiness and emerging out of this blue surrounded by the gold. And um, as you look at him, he's human but strange. Um, he looks like you and he comes with his hand raised um, in the same way that the pastor blesses you with um, the first couple letters of his name, the Cairo of Christ, right? And so he comes peacefully to you and Yet there are all sorts of tiff-offs that this is crazy. One is he floats above the landscape. Another is that he's the source of light. So there's not light shining on him. But he illumines the people next to him, as well as the stones beneath his feet. And then, of course, you have Moses and Elijah who are technically dead. And what could possibly be going on with those two? And you remember that Moses and Elijah stand in for the law and the prophets. Or if you will, they stand in for the grand epic, the story of how the Lord loves his creation and cares about each one of you. But that story is not always well received. And so you see the three disciples at the bottom, Peter, James, and John. And you notice right away that they are nimbus free. You see around Jesus' head and around Moses and Elijah, there's a nimbus, that white circle, which is the mark of life and holiness and sainthood. And then you move to the bottom and you see Peter and James and John aren't there yet. And if you were going to locate yourself in the story, I suspect uh, you'd locate yourself with them. Honorable folks, but folks who... Uh, just quite aren't quite up to speed. They're terrified. They don't understand. Um, they're certainly worried, and they're moving away from Jesus rather than toward him. At best, it's a standoff if they're caught on the rocks. So as you look at that, then, I want to read you the story. Um, so one way to read it is just to look at that and observe. But I also want to read you a story, and I've given you this under point three, but I'm not going to show it to you right now. Just let me read it to you. And, you know, I've done the terribly annoying thing that pastors often do, which is to give you a lot of Greek or Hebrew or Latin. 
Now I did that. Um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to read those those bits to you in in the Greek in this case, but I am going to offer you some a different translation of those words. And I gave you the words because almost anybody can find these words now, and you can uh, you can actually do almost anybody can if you actually would type in Matthew seventeen one interlinear and go to Bible Hub. You can a couple of clicks. You can do what it used to take people at seminary years to do. But I want to I want to try to show you how gospelly this is and how much Jesus loves you in the course of this story. After six days, Jesus pulled these disciples very near. He took Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain. So Jesus comes to them. Jesus always makes the first move. He embraces them, and he takes them up to a high place. And um, you actually know this even from, uh, you know this even from uh, our prayer that we say on all saints. You know, we have this prayer that says, we remember those who have gone into your nearer presence. What does that mean? It means that the Lord has embraced those people all the way to heaven. So after six days, Jesus took these three, he pulls them close, and he takes them up a high mountain by themselves. Um, Not just because it's secret, but more because uh, they are uniquely his. And he was transfigured, and, you know, anybody of my age had uh, mighty morphin power rangers for the kids, and that's the word, metamorphuo, the metamorphosis, the change. So he stays the same, but he becomes something different. He was transfigured before them and his face, his face, and this is, you know, all over scripture. If you've seen Jesus' face, you've seen the father. If you've seen uh, Jesus' face, um, then you've seen God's glory. His face shone like the sun. And you can see that there in that, uh, not so much that his face is bright white, but that his face is the source of light for everything else in the icon. So his face became bright white and it shone like the sun and his clothes became light, inexhaustibly pure. And behold, there was with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Jesus tells stories and they tell stories and you can imagine what that conversation must have been like. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, this is beautiful. So this word for good is also translated as beautiful. You actually want both translations, but it's almost always, Lord, it's good that we are here. But it actually also means this beauty is overwhelming. So you sort of think about them just soaked in divine things. It's it's as if, you know, it's as, as, as if it's raining, it's pouring on them. And they're soaked in everything good. And this is a visceral kind of experience. So this will be what it'll be like in heaven. You'll be, you'll be soaked in the divine. You'll be soaked in holiness. You'll be soaked in love and in warmth. And for, for people who have gone before you and died, it's such a great sadness and shock for us. But if you actually think about what they're, you, you, you have to think about in the most pleasant way, Every sense, every thought, every feeling, every emotion, everything is pulled, everything is pulled into perfect balance with with the love of God, with the divine. 
So you, you can't, you can hardly express how wonderful this is and how wonderful it'll be, it'll be for an eternity. So Peter begins to express that it's, it's beautiful here that we're just soaked in this. And we'll do whatever you wish. So there is a notion of obedience here. If it's best, I'll make three tents and we can stay here forever. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that, that detail is going to become important at the end of the story tonight. While Jesus was still speaking, there was a bright cloud. And any good Jew would know when fire or cloud enters the story, it's going to have a happy ending. Because the Lord has appeared in mercy and he's told everybody, I love you and I'm here for you. So while he was still speaking, there was a bright cloud. It overshadowed them, so it engulfed them. And a voice said, so now think storyteller. So now the story gets richer. First you have a story of Jesus, then of Moses, then of Elijah. Now finally the heavenly father is going to speak himself. And the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved. Or this is the one that is beyond all others. And if once you're baptized, this is what the Lord says about you. You should never forget that when the Lord looks at you, he says to you just what he said to Jesus at his baptism, you're my beloved. I take great pleasure in you. And you should think that way about yourself as well. I love you and I take great, great pleasure in you. Listen to him. And now listen doesn't just mean, you know, your ears. And remember, you even remember the one when Solomon had one prayer when he was about to be king. The one prayer that he had was that he would have, it literally says, a heart with ears. So he'd have ears on his heart so that he could listen. Listen doesn't just mean, you know, your ears are open. It means that you tend and embrace everything he says. So this is my beloved. I'm completely pleased with him. Tend him, follow him, listen to him, obey him, do whatever he says, and have a heart toward him that's undivided. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face, terrified. And that's the phobos or phobia word that we get again and again. This is one of the things that God, that, that Jesus combats most with the disciples. Regularly, Jesus says, don't fear. He says that when he's walking on the water, he says that at the tomb. Right? He says it here at Transfiguration. Don't fear. So um, don't fear. And when Jesus came to them, now proximity, after to talk about nearness or embrace um, several times since we've been together. So when Jesus comes near to you, the news gets better and better. So nearer presence in heaven. Jesus embraced them. Jesus held them and took them up the mountain. Jesus comes to them when they're tumbling down. And then this great word, and this is the one Greek word I'll do for them. He touched them. And I've tried to convince you over the years that the gospel is touch. It doesn't matter if Jesus' words are touching your ear or if you're being touched at baptism when you get splashed with the holy name or, you know, when you get the body and blood of Christ that touches your tongue. And interestingly, um, this is the one Greek word I'll do for you. This is hoptomai. And the word means it's touch that alters 
or influences or modifies or changes, which is a great word for exactly what the gospel does. You might know this if you have an iPhone. I, had to, I didn't make this connection till later. You know, there's one setting on your iPhone for hoptics, right? What's hoptics, right? That's how you touch. If you push hard, push harder, push longer, the touch changes things. If you look in your settings, you'll see it. It's crazy. The hoptics on your phone, how, how you touch. That's the word here, hoptimize. It's a touch that changes you. That's what the gospel does. So Jesus comes to them and he touches them and says, rise. Now, what's so interesting about that is that is for being resurrected from the dead. And at the end of this text, Jesus is going to say, don't tell anybody this story until I'm resurrected from the dead. He's going to use exactly the same word. So he resurrects them from their terror. It's like a change in life. Rise and have no fear, right? Learn to welcome the future because I love you. It's all going to be fine. It's safe to go outside. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And it's Jesus only because he's enough. And they were coming back down the mountain and Jesus said, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Tell no one your vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, if you are um, on the outline, I'm already to point four. Um, But I want to make sure that I, I'm actually going to skip ahead tonight because I want to say two really important things to you. Um, One is this. So this is a short one and then a long one. This is among the most comforting things that you could know. There is a reason that Peter and James and John are on the mountain, are in Gethsemane, are at the cross and at the tomb. And the reason is not about them. The reason is that they have met Jesus in his glory and they understand what Jesus leaves to come and be with them. And it's not just that Jesus sticks with them when everything is wonderful, when everyone, everything is beautiful, when they're soaked in the divine, when everything is on fire, but in the most pleasant possible way, it's not that Jesus sticks with them just when things are fabulous No, the next three instances are terrifying. There were horrible failure in Gethsemane, those three. You know, John ends up alone with Mary at the foot of the cross. And on Easter morning, Phobos is the word of the day. Everybody's terrified all the time. They're terrified because the stone is back. They're terrified because they see an angel. They're terrified because the tomb is empty. They're terrified when when they meet him in the upper room. Mary Magdalene's terrified when she meets him in the garden. And Emmaus, they're not terrified, but they can't understand. And then their hearts are on fire. The first thing is, from this icon, you have the, the wonderful assurance that when Jesus comes back down the mountain, he comes to be with you and to stick with you even in the most terrible times. 
So all the sense that we have that we've been forgotten and it's been almost a year that we've been locked in and everything is a disaster and we're isolated and we're alone and nobody loves us and we need to despair and that our life is hopeless. Um, it may be the emotion, but it's not the truth. The truth is that the Lord sticks with us and every story that he gives us is a story about how he left this, the transfiguration, and came to stick with you. And then, um, you know, it's funny how fast the time goes. It always seems like when I write, there's, I'll never make it 30 minutes, but then I always have more. But, you know, I think I've told you this, um, and I've come to treasure this more over the years. When I was, uh, a graduate student in Cambridge, the guy who wrote the book from which this icon comes, Rowan Williams, was my graduate tutor. And as a graduate student, the, um, once a week, um, you receive a note from your tutor who says, uh, who give you a prompt. Um, and then 20 books to read for the week. And then you write him a paper that you turn in on a Thursday and um, then you appear in his presence and read it aloud on a Friday. So, you know, the bonus prize was I, I got Rowan Williams to myself once a week for an hour or an hour and a half. Um, everybody knew he was a genius. He'd married a bishop's daughter. He was already a professor at Cambridge. Uh, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, then uh, is now in these later years, um, I think he's the master at Magdalen College in Oxford. But he writes poetry and theology, and the, the glory of it is he writes in a way that everybody can understand, but in things that you can't possibly imagine. So I'll read you this, but it's, it's you know, this is number six on your outline. And I have found this to be, you know, two of the most comforting pages I've read in my entire life. And the point is um, that even if you can't see your life, it matters. And even if you think all is lost, it's not. So in the Gospels, the transfiguration story is introduced with the apparently innocent words after six days in Matthew and Mark or after about eight days in Luke. From early times, commentators have said that this is an allusion to the days of creation. The transfiguration is the climax of the creative work of God, either the entrance into the joy and repose of the seventh day, or the beginning of the new creation, the eighth day, depending on what kind of symbolism you want to use. In Jesus, the world of ordinary prosaic time is not destroyed, but it is broken up and reconnected. It works no longer just in straight lines, but in layers and spirals and meaning. This is part of our trouble right now. We see our, our lives in straight lines. And we compare to a year ago when this was just starting. And we think about the things we've lost and where we've been and what could have been. But that's not how time works in the scriptures. It's not linear. It spirals and swoops around and 
comes back to the same thing. That's why when you read a psalm, it says the same thing twice in a row, just to make sure that you figured it out. We begin to understand how our lives, like those of Moses and Elijah, may have meanings we can't know in this present moment. The real depth and significance of what we say or do now won't appear until more light of the Christ has been seen. And so what we think is crucially important may not be so. What we think insignificant may be really what changes us for good or evil. Christ's light alone will make the final pattern coherent for each one of us as for all human history. So in these last weeks and months and even year, if you've despaired of your life or of your family or your friends or people who've let you down or your job or you don't know which way is up, all I can say is you have no idea what's going on. And I have no idea what's going on either. I know what I should do and what I should say. I know what virtue is and where I've come short. But understanding our lives really isn't given to us. And I think, you know, for anybody who's older in this conversation, you realize the things that mattered to you 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, that don't really matter that much anymore. And the things you care about desperately are fewer and much more significant. Christ's light alone will make the final pattern coherent for each one of us as for all human history. And that light shines on the far side of the world's limits. You see, here's hope now, welcoming the future. The dawn of the eighth day. So you from St. John, remember, eight bursts around the font, eight sides to the altar platform. Why? What's given at the font is nourished at the altar. And what's given and nourished is the future, right? Toward heaven, toward the transfiguration, toward the return into the deep blue, toward being soaked in the beautiful. We see that every act and suffering of Jesus is part of the act of God. Embrace freely in God's journey toward us out of his depths. We also think of how the shape of our own lives is finally going to be in God's hands, not ours. Like Moses and Elijah, we do not know yet, in St. John's words, what we shall be. Our time, our stories about ourselves, our histories are the best we can do from where we stand and look. And that's a very charitable way to think about ourselves and our families and our kids and the people who have disappointed us and people we've lost and been estranged from and parents and grandparents. This is the best that we can do oftentimes. We just have to say it about ourselves. Our time, our stories about ourselves, our histories are the best we can do for where we stand and look. But God's perspective can do strange things with history. And we are not the best judges of the meanings of our lives. It really matters to God, God to the world. We are given a glimpse of what God can do 
in this rare moment of direct vision, when the door of perception is opened by and in Jesus, and the end of the world is fleetingly there before us. And finally, we can let ourselves contemplate the fact that the divine freedom shown us in this vision tells us both that there is no escape from the world in which we have been put as creatures and that there is nowhere from which God can finally be exiled. So we hold those two things together, right? The troubles, the pain, the disappointments. But also, I mean, there's no escape, right? Nobody gets out of here alive. There's no escape from the world in which we live but there's nowhere from which God can finally be exiled. Way early in my time at St. John, I couldn't even find it because I'm working mostly from home. But I remember I had a sermon about this that was called, back in the old days when I gave sermons titles, Jesus' second day at work. I was trying to find it, but I couldn't. But you know, this is Jesus' first day, if you will. But his second day at work, he goes back down the mountain. And I don't know if you remember, but the very next story, in scripture is Jesus goes down the mountain and there's this boy thrashing around. He's possessed by a demon tossed into the fire. And the the dad is crying and the disciples can't fix it. And Jesus kind of heaves a sigh and, um, you know, heals this boy, gives him back to his father. That was the best they could do. Um, And yet Jesus wasn't exiled from that. This is the great challenge to faith. Knowing that Christ is in the heart of darkness and we are called to go there with him. In John 11, Thomas says to the other disciples, let us go and die with him. And ahead indeed lies death. The dead Lazarus decaying in the tomb. The death of Jesus in abandonment. Your death and mine and the deaths of countless human beings in various degrees of dark nights. But if we have seen his glory on the mountain, we know at least, whatever our terrors, that death cannot decide the boundaries of God's life. With him, the door is always open, and no one can shut it. So, that's hope, friends. Um, the door is always open and no one can shut it. Um, you're afraid. I am too sometimes. And yet your fear is, you know, inconsequential in many ways. Um, and best you can, you might as well not waste time on it, right? So think about that. You can, you can have that um, couple of pages. Uh, this book is one of the 10 best books I've ever read, The Dwelling of the Light by Ron Williams. It's a meditation on this icon and some others. Um, you can still get it from Amazon. I buy 20 copies at a time and give them away to seminary students and college kids and anybody who wants one. But um, they're getting harder to find because they were always, always hardcover and then now they're paperback. So at some point it'll go out of print. But, you know, this is one of those books where you sell everything and buy one because it'll change your life. It's already nine. Um, I love you. Thanks for Ash Wednesday last night. It was so pleasant. You know, for one reason, simply because all the services were quite full. 
You know, remember Camus in the plague? He said, uh, they knew the plague was over when the rats returned. So there was enough garbage in the streets that the rats were, were back in business, right? And so um, I'm getting the sense, you know, not this isn't speaking personally of you. I'm getting the sense that the rats are about to return. So mm-hmm. it's nice when things are a bit full and um, it feels a little more normal. It even feels nice when I can just see your faces tonight. So uh, keep going. Um, you know, difficulty and despair are normal uh, emotions, but just because they're yours, you don't need to keep them. And, you know, when you get uh, a little bit blue or you seem a bit alone, you might pull this icon out and, um, you know, tape it to your wall and shine a bright light on it in the middle of the night. Or alternately, you know, say a few of these prayers and um, maybe we'll say this one then and be done. Lord, make my heart like your heart. Amen. Okay, thanks, friends. Happy Lent. Um, it's good to see you around. And, and uh, you know, we'll do our best to keep going here on Thursday nights and also see you on the weekend. You're free to go. I'll hang around if you want to open your mic and ask a question or two. Um, I'll stick around for 10 or 15 minutes. But thanks very much for, for being part of this. It's very, very nice to see you. Love you. Otherwise, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, Looking at the icon, um, the uh, person on the lower right, could you describe to to me his posture in the icon? I can't make it out. Is he is he laying down? Is it those are arms in the air? I know just like me, you went home last week and you you watched the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, not because you wanted to see golf, but because you wanted to see the Pacific Ocean, right? And the guy that won it on 16 came out of the bunker and he just was chipping it in and he, he fell backwards and you, all you could see was his feet with the camera shot. Did you see that? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what's happening to him right there. He's He's, he's, he's been destroyed uh, okay. and, and he, he's on his back with his feet up. So it's exactly okay. the same. It couldn't be, it couldn't be more same, same. Thank you. Weeks. Yes, you're welcome. Keep going. Um, you know, much of life is just about putting one foot in front of the other. And do remember, you know, in the darkness, uh, you know, the darkness doesn't, is ineffective against the voice, Right. So the voice of Jesus in the darkness, darkness is ineffective against the voice. It doesn't change the voice. So you just, you listen. At some point, you know, you come through the other side. All right, keep going. I'll, um, I'll see you on Sunday. Thanks very much. Please be safe. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all going to be okay. No fear. All right. Love you all. See you soon.